The Astrea Trilogy, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. Book One, The Voyage South. Chapter Five, in which they are storm-struck, and Astrea reaches Teenmouth. The dawn wind tugged the Molly against her lines, waking Roaring Jack in an instant. Soon they had the anchors aboard and were heading out of the bay. At the skipper's word, Estrella had his sketching equipment in his hands from the moment they were under way, but he could see little ahead for the rising sun, which briefly lit the Molly's sails before it was smudged by a band of cloud. Roaring Jack squinted through his bushy eyebrows and then glanced down at Estrella's still hands. "'Well now, lad, give us one more look, looking back at the mouth of the bay.' "'We don't never want to be going back there again.' They cleared the headlands through which they had approached the doomed village, and turned towards the south in a beam-reach. As the mollies steadied to a freshening west wind, Red Ian passed out slices of twice-baked bread slathered with blueberry jam. Then, finding the cockpit too crowded, he climbed over the cabin top and sat with his back against the mast. "'Right!' announced Roaring Jack. We're heading south. There's got to be good fishing somewheres near here. We're not going home? Jan asked before he could stop himself. Not yet. Estrella focused on sketching the view over the stern, now looking down at his work, now glancing up at the fast diminishing headland to assure himself that he had seen correctly and recorded faithfully. This view was crucial, because it would identify their position when they made the return voyage. So he held the sketch at arm's length and examined it critically. Was there a rock he had missed? Suddenly, almost painfully, his bracelet tingled, as if someone had gripped him just above his elbow. He would have peeled back his sleeve to find out why he felt it prickle his skin, but he was too busy. And besides, he remembered Scarm's advice to keep the bracelet secret. However, he was still acutely conscious of the circlet of silvery metal on his arm. Muttering about needing fresh charcoal, he ducked down into the cabin and pulled off his jacket. The green glow from his bracelet was clearly visible through the material of his shirt, and dimly lit the cabin when he rolled back his sleeve. Here, cover it with this. Estrella turned to see Skarm halfway down the companionway steps, his arm outstretched. In his hand was what looked like a scrap of thick cloth, but when Estrella took it, he saw that it was a strip of hand-woven string. "'Ocean plat,' said Skarm. "'Wrap it around and over your bracelet. Here, I'll tie it under your arm.' They stood swaying in the cabin, while Skarm tied the plaited string around Estrella's bracelet. Only a faint light emerged through the fabric. "'It'll tighten if it gets wet.' Make sure it stays round the metal and it doesn't bite into your arm. On deck! Roaring Jack's voice brought them both out of the cabin in a rush. When they reached the cockpit, the molly was in bright sunlight, but a moment later the light left them, gleamed briefly on the sea to starboard, and then disappeared into lowering dark cloud. The wind suddenly piped up from the northwest. Roaring Jack's eyebrow arched over his left eye as he squinted into the weather. Wind from over the land, gusty and confused by the headlands and cliffs, fought with the main force of the oncoming storm, whipping up whitecaps. Cat's paws of down-drafted air blackened the shoulders of rising waves. Overhead, the spar creaked and the sails strained as Roaring Jack spilled wind from the mainsail. Their eyes wide with anticipation, they awaited the skipper's orders. "'All hands to shorten sail!' boomed Roaring Jack's voice. "'I'll have the jib down and a reef—no, two—on the main. And put two boards in the companionway. We don't need any of that salt chuck down below.' Then more quietly he added, "'Not you, Strayer. Finish your markings. We'll need them on our way homeward.' "'I'm done,' said Estrella. I can't go on now, anyway. I can barely see the headland. The skipper looked over his shoulder to where the land was smudged by grey rain. Aye, she's come up right quick. Get your markings below and batten down for a stiff one. She'll be on us full force before you can sing a chorus of the wanderer's curse. Estrella looked up, startled. 
Had Roaring Jack been listening last night? Had Scarman the skipper talked about him after he was asleep? He almost let go of the sketch on which he'd been working as he went below to the tiny cabin where he hurriedly stowed his sketching materials, staggering as the molly leaned alarmingly to port. He checked the cabin for loose gear, buttoned his oiled jacket, pulled a woolen cap firmly onto his head and climbed back to the cockpit. Once there, he slid the cabin hatch closed behind him and inserted two boards across the companionway to keep water from the cockpit from slopping down into the cabin. Ruffin' up! Now! Astraea was thrown against the starboard side of the cockpit as Roaring Jack headed the molly into the wind so that the crew could shorten sail. The molly pitched up and down, one moment almost standing on her stern, the next plunging her bow into the waves. Huge gouts of spray flew over the molly's foredeck, almost hiding Skarm from view. Water splashed into the cockpit, soaking Astraea to the knees. The mainsail flapped heavy whip-cracks in wind that was still rising as Skarm eased the main halyard with his good hand, his other elbow hooked around the mast. Aghast at the forces around them, Astraea grasped the cabin top as the molly climbed another, even steeper wave. Spray flew into his face. When he wiped his eyes, Skarm was still there, thin stripes of grey hair plastered to his forehead. Astern at the tiller, Roaring Jack kept the molly headed upwind and luffing with the boom amidships. Yan climbed past Astraea onto the cabin top and bent double over the boom. Red Ian stood in the starboard quarter of the cockpit, reaching up to where the canvas flapped above him. Astraea did his best to reach the boom between them. The sail bellied as it slid down the mast. All three of them strove to quiet the canvas by tying the reef points, the dozen cords dangling from both sides of the sail, which whipped back and forth as the sail jerked first one way and then the other. Astraea reached around the boom, grabbed sailcloth in both hands, and bundled boom and sail together. Smelt Yan squatted on the cabin top with his knees under the boom. Astraea and Red Ian had to reach over their heads, past the bobbing and swaying boom, grasp a reef point in each hand, and then tie the two ends around the boom with spray-numbed fingers. They staggered as the molly heaved and bucked, jerking Astraea off his feet to dangle above the cockpit sole. Red Ian's size and strength kept the boom from thrashing them all over the side, and after a few desperate moments they each secured one, and then, with increasing ease, the rest of the reef points. Astraea dropped back down into the cockpit. Above him the sail still flapped and bellied, even though reduced to nearly half its original size. Red Ian climbed ahead to the mast where he and Skarm braced up the halyards to set the sail into its newly reduced shape. Almost before they had finished, Roaring Jack yanked on the tiller, and the molly took the wind on her starboard side. Instantly the lee rail was awash. Thanks to the reefs in her sail, the boat no longer threatened to lay her mast flat on the sea, but spray splashed over the cockpit combing with each wave. Whether from excitement or bravado, Yan came aft too quickly. He tried to get down from the cabin top in a single slithering rush, but the molly heaved and shook as a breaking wave slapped her starboard quarter. Yan's foot slipped, and he fell face forward, his fingers clawing frantically at the smooth wood. Out of control, he plummeted head first into the water that was racing past the cockpit combing. Astraea reacted first. With only a bent knee under the combing to hold him in the cockpit, he caught Yan's belt as he slid along the lee decking in a flurry of spray. The sea pulled at Yan's head and shoulders, and would have broken Astraea's grip had not the molly swung to windward as she wallowed up the side of a wave. For a moment the water no longer poured down the narrow side deck, and Yan's red hair dripped into the wave below him. Reddy and grabbed the slack of Yan's pants, and the two of them pulled him half into the cockpit. As the boat crested the next wave, the wind shoved the boat's lee rail back into the sea. Now the water slapped into Astraea's face, and again he almost let go. Then, as the molly ran into the trough between two waves, Roaring Jack hauled the tiller towards him, and Yan became almost weightless in Astraea's grasp, 
as the sudden course change flipped him out of the sea into the cockpit, where he joined Astraea and Red Ian in a tangle at Roaring Jack's feet. "'Get a grip on something and hold on!' yelled Roaring Jack. "'The wind's veering and we'll have to run for it. There's no chance of ducking behind the headlands. We'd broach as we rounded the point, even if we missed the rocks.' The rain squall that had blotted out the shoreline now reached the molly, hissing into the sea around them as the first drops drummed on the taut sail. Roaring Jack took a turn around a cleat to check the mainsail, and Estrella saw the rope twist and drip under the strain. When he could no longer manage the sail with one hand, the skipper passed the sheet to Red Ian, who controlled it almost casually. Estrella had never imagined anything as impersonally terrifying as the power of the seas around them. He'd been used to looking down on waves from the deck of the molly. Now their wind-torn crests were above his head, soaking all of them with spray. Through the spindrift he glimpsed the horizon between waves like white-crested mountain ranges. Water sloshed and splashed on his feet. The boat creaked ominously, and her rigging wailed in protest. Paralyzing terror gripped him, and he breathed short. Moments earlier his fear for Yan had made him quick to respond. Now a chest-tightening stiffness possessed him. He was swung back and forth like a log, his chest thumping against the cockpit edge, his knuckles barked raw on the cleats at which he clutched. More by luck than will, he looked aft and saw Roaring Jack. The wind was blowing his red beard sideways across his craggy face, and his eyes were narrowed against the wind-driven spray. But the skipper's face was set in a grin. He glanced first upward at the sail, then from side to side, then with a quick turn of his head back over the starboard quarter to gauge the arrival of the next gust. Estrella saw that Roaring Jack was enjoying the danger as a sport, matching his skills against the uncaring storm. The waves were now so high that the wind slackened when the molly was down in the wave troughs. Estrella saw that Red Ian also knew what he was doing and shared the danger equally with his skipper. With a long pull he hauled the boom inboard as the clue of the sail touched the water. Then a heartbeat later, when they crested the wave, he eased the sheet to spill wind that would have split the sail or rolled the boat half over. Beside him Roaring Jack stood at the tiller his legs braced and his big shoulders humped. The two men alternately wrestled and coaxed the molly through seas that would have swamped her had their concentration wavered for an instant. Estrella's terror eased. He stopped fighting to stay upright and began to swing back and forth with the boat's motion. Then he let out a breath that he'd been holding for much too long. "'Get this slop out of here!' shouted Roaring Jack kicking a bare foot in the water that sloshed around the cockpit. Estrella tugged a leather bucket out of the stern locker. Wedging himself firmly against the cockpit side, he started to bail. He scooped deep into the water surging around their feet, and the bailer came up almost full. When he tossed it over his shoulder, it hissed into a smooth, slanting wall of water above his head. Estrella was momentarily aghast at having to throw water upward, into the waves. However, after a dozen or so bailers full of water had followed the first, his anxiety dimmed, and he knew that he had begun a job that would have no end until the storm was over. Even as he bailed, more spray and rain added to what already sluiced back and forth among the crew's legs. He moderated his first heroic efforts at emptying the cockpit to the more realistic goal of keeping the water level tolerably low. His world shrank to the repetitive work. Scoop, scrape, throw. Scoop, scrape, throw. Time was measured by the motion of his arm. Discomfort built to pain that numbed his shoulder. He changed hands and discovered another measure of the storm, the number of hand changes. For a while action kept him warm. Then gradually his soaking clothes pulled heat from his body, and he shivered uncontrollably. He dropped the baler and stared at it stupidly. Skarm hooked his foot in it just before it went over the side. Change over! 
Roaring Jack's voice boomed out over the whistling of the wind and the rigging and the water noises around the molly as she rushed through the waves. Astrea jammed himself into the starboard corner of the cockpit and let his weary arms relax. All too soon the skipper again gave the order to change, and later to change again. So it went through a long, dark, wet day, until Astrea could barely see what he was doing. As night fell, the skipper issued a new order. Astrea, go below. You too, Skarm. No point in everyone being wet and cold. Yan, get Balin. Trade about when I call you. Astrea and Red Ian opened the cabin hatch and struggled in one after the other, grateful to be out of the constant wind and slashing rain. Skarm reached into the boat's chest under the companionway and pulled out a lump of twice-baked bread, hard as wood, and a skin of the village whiskey. Astrea had tasted the liquor before on a dare one midwinter feast, and remembered that he had coughed uncontrollably. Now, after one throat-searing swallow of the fiery spirit, he handed back the skin and swung himself into the lee of the mast. "'Your father did that,' said Skarm. "'One sip, and no more.' even when we had a full hold to celebrate. Estrella was so tired, he barely heard the sailor's voice over the creaking of the mast beside him. The mouthful of whiskey still burned in his stomach, but he was shivering, and his feet were numb. His arms ached as he struggled out of his jacket and stripped off his wet shirt. As Skarm had warned, the string had tightened around his bracelet, hiding both the silvery band and the green stone. With fingers that would not stop shaking, he dug out the new sweater Alanna had given him and put it on before draping a blanket around his shoulders and settling himself between the mast and the boat's side. One moment he was almost weightless as the molly fell under him. Then, as the boat rolled and pitched, he felt the boat push him upwards all along his backbone. He rested his head against the curve of the boat's side between two wooden ribs and heard the rush of water only a thumb's width away. The sound and motion that would have made him deathly sick only a few days earlier now helped him relax. Water gurgled and sloshed in the bilge below him. The mast groaned in its step at his shoulder, joining a chorus of noises from all the many other parts of the molly's wooden body. Nonetheless, Astrea slept. What seemed moments later he was roughly awakened. "'Back on deck! I don't have to do it all!' It was Yan, shaking him by the shoulder with a wet hand. "'Get up! You never do your share of the work,' said Yan venomously, when Estrella did not move. Skarm's voice came from the lee berth. "'That ain't so,' he growled, his voice husky with sleep. "'And even to it, and even if twas, it's small thanks you're given a man who saved you from your own foolishness in the last watch.' Yan turned and hissed a whisper more insistent than a shout. "'Don't take his side! Don't! You all do it!' Estrella crawled out of his berth and swayed to his feet in the darkness, steadying himself against the mast to get into his oiled jacket. Because he could think of nothing to abate Yan's anger, he simply pointed to the blankets before struggling into his wet jacket and tugging his wool cap down over his ears. Yan muttered something that was obviously not thanks. Grumbling himself awake, Skarm led the way to the cabin hatch, pushed it open, and scrambled out. Estrella paused, half in and half out of the cabin, transfixed by what he saw. A patch of star-shot sky gaped black between torn shreds of cloud, side-lit by the waning moon. Then the molly lurched, and the pin-pricked pattern was only a memory, as he stood one arm on the hatch cover, with the wind plucking at his still damp jacket. Estrella shivered. Low, ragged clouds no longer rained onto the sea. Closer to him, Estrella glimpsed Roaring Jack's hand, gripping the tiller as if he were a part of his boat. Hunched in the stern, the skipper was silhouetted against the night sky, intermittently lit when the moon gleamed through the wind-torn clouds. A silvery brightness came and went on the sea around them, as moonlight shafted between the clouds onto the white splashes of spray that patched the water around the molly. There was no guessing 
where the sea ended and the sky began. Astrea began to bail once more. Hunkered onto the cockpit sole, he could not dodge the occasional wave-top that burst over the combing. His jacket protected him from most of the water, but spray found its way between his collar and his wool cap to run in a cold stream down his spine. Bilge water surged back and forth in the dark of the cockpit, sometimes splashing up into his face, but most of the time no longer rising higher than his ankles. He returned to counting the bailers full in order to forget the wind, the wet, and a weariness that seemed unaffected by his rest below. Hypnotically, he went through the motions. Scoop, scrape, throw. Scoop, scrape, throw. When dawn began to contest with the moonlight, Astrea caught a glimpse of what he'd been bailing by feel for hours. Then, looking up as he threw water over his shoulder, he saw Roaring Jack's face above him. The skipper's hair, beard, and even his bushy eyebrows were flecked with salt and matted by wind and water, but his determined look had not changed. Astrea returned to his bailing, gradually becoming aware that he could look forward to a finish. The molly rode easier. Spray no longer ran in rivulets from the cabin top, nor splashed into the cockpit from the tops of waves. It had been some time since last he had been wetted. Seven scoops more, now five, now three. Now only a succession of scrapes with a half-empty baler. Astrea sat back on his heels and flexed his shoulders. Roaring Jack bent over him, salt glistening in his beard. His powerful voice was only a croak. Take the tiller, lad. I must stretch or crack. Astrea scrambled to his feet and stood beside the tiller. As his hand closed on the smooth wood, he felt the twitch and heave of the molly's life. Hold the wind in your right ear. Keep the sail full, said Roaring Jack. The big man almost fell as he changed the position he had held all night. Skarm, hunched over the main sheet in a half-doze, moved as if to steady the skipper, but Roaring Jack regained his balance with a stagger. Cracking his knuckles and shrugging his shoulders, he faced the dawn's first glow with a prodigious yawn. He made a fist of one big hand and pounded it on the cabin roof. "'Bring up food and whiskey,' he shouted, his voice husky. Red Ian and Yan soon joined them in the cockpit. Roaring Jack seized the skin of liquor and took a long pull, coughed, and drank again. "'Where are we?' asked Yan, shivering in the dawn wind. Oh, "'We've been out of sight of land all night,' began Red Ian, and then stopped at Yan's look of terror and Roaring Jack's quick gesture for silence. Village boats seldom ventured past where they could see land, never unless they were sure that a simple course reversal would take them home. However, Astrea was not fearful. Like the rest of the crew, he knew that there was no guarantee that they had sailed in the same direction throughout the storm, let alone followed the unknown coastline. His glimpse of the stars had told him they were heading south, and the pre-dawn glow on the port horizon confirmed it. He saw concern, and in Yan's case fear, in the quick glances with which the crew searched the horizon for land. But strangely, he did not share their anxiety. Roaring Jack knew how to deal with the apprehensive mood. His orders soon had them hoisting the jib, shaking reefs out of the mainsail, and tightening halyards. The work had the effect he wanted, as did the food and drink that followed it. Their fears abated. They sat together in the cockpit, chewing on hunks of bread and cheese washed down with water, and for the men, whiskey. As the rising sun started to dry out both boat and crew, Astrea began to feel ready for whatever might happen next. Roaring Jack had more orders. "'Strea, you're lightest. Climb the mast and take a look about you. The Molly's not as frisky as she was.' Astrea glanced up, swallowed, and started forward. Yan whispered to him as he climbed onto the cabin top. "'Go on, Strea. Fall over the side. I want to see you face down in the water.' Ignoring the ill-wishing, Astrea gained the mast, 
pulled his knitted hat more firmly onto his head, took hold of the halyards and started to climb. Once his bare feet found the hoops of shaped wood that held the sail to the mast, it was surprisingly easy. He forgot the danger of letting go and being flung into the sea, and used the molly's rolling motion instead of fighting it. He climbed when the boat was at the leeward side of her roll, and the mast was like a steep, rounded ladder with widely spaced rungs, and then he clung as she rolled back. His climb became more difficult when he reached the gaff, and had to work his way up and over the spar. Finally, he stood, the bare masthead in the crook of his arm, one foot on the jaws of the gaff, where its leather padding soared and squeaked against the mast. From this vantage he could see in all directions, unhampered by the sail. He felt the wind pull at his clothes, flapping his pant-legs and sleeves, and tugging at his woollen hat. The horizon which from the cockpit had been only visible in glimpses, now was a distinct line. Anything? Even Roaring Jack's voice was practically inaudible, making Astraea more conscious of how much height, air, and wind separated them. He took a quick, nervous breath, and set himself to answering the skipper's question, staring out over waves now only occasionally flecked with white caps. Astraea wished he could spare a hand to shade his eyes. Ahead, then to port, then to starboard, he scanned the ocean around them. At first he saw nothing but the heaving waves. Then, as he looked ahead for the second time, it seemed to him that there was a whiteness he had not noticed at first. He bent his head to wipe his eyes on the arm he had crooked around the mast, and looked again. "'Breakers ahead!' he yelled suddenly sure of what he saw. "'Let's depart, or starboard!' The question reached him in fragments. He reached a decision without even knowing he had made it. "'Less to port!' he shouted, and in the same instant wondered whether he was correct. Below him the skipper's voice boomed, "'Stand by to jibe! Jibe ho!' Estrella felt the gaff move under his feet, as unseen hands below him sheeted in the sail to execute a controlled jibe. The molly's movement changed. Instead of quartering downwind in an up-and-down pitch-and-roll, interrupted by the occasional jolt when she punched her bow into a wave, she now surged slantwise across the seas, sliding into the troughs. As she heeled to starboard, Estrella could see the molly's stem cut into the wave crests, throwing out a white bow-wave. Elated by the speed, Estrella remembered gulls. Like them, he was poised on the wind, stealing movement from its power. Soon the breakers were definitely less in the direction to which they sped. Behind the white of the broken seas, Estrella saw green, vivid green, unlike the dark forests with which he was familiar. "'Land ho!' he shouted. "'Lo! Green hills! Beyond the breakers!' He broke his message into sections to shout it down over the curved belly of the sail. Red Ian's voice came from the foot of the mast, relaying messages. "'Is there a break in the surf?' Estrella hesitated. How could he tell if a gap between the breakers would be wide enough and deep enough to take the molly's keel? And would there be a gap at all? He searched frantically, tightening his grip on the mast as they drove towards a reef that grew nearer and more threatening every moment. The gaff creaked under him once more, and the molly was close-hauled, sailing roughly parallel to the breakers. Ahead he glimpsed into the tube under waves that were cresting and breaking over the reef. He knew that the molly was at the mercy of a wind that could drive her into the lee shore. Before the thought could turn to panic, he noticed a change in the sea around them. The molly no longer sailed in a blue-green sea, but was entering water discoloured with reddish mud. Astrea's days of sketching at Roaring Jack's elbow made him certain of what he saw. Ahead and to his right there was a smooth water gap amid the breakers. "'Take her a lee! Now!' Astrea shouted. Fully expecting Roaring Jack to refuse his dangerous advice, Astrea's throat tightened as the molly altered course downwind, climbing the waves to their crests and then sliding down into their troughs. 
Estrella clutched at the masthead as the gaff under him changed position. The topping lift scraped his shoulder, so he put an arm over it to keep his balance. Estrella stood, dipping and swaying with the pulse of the wind itself. Like a diving bird that sights a fish, Estrella saw a ragged line of foam, weed, and pieces of driftwood, and when next the molly crested a wave, he confirmed the gap, where brown muddy water marked the outpouring of a stream. "'Starboard! Wind astern!' Moments later, Estrella felt the molly move to his will. He recalled Roaring Jack's fierce delight in the first squalls of the storm. He chuckled, heard himself, and was glad nobody else could. Then he clutched at the mast as the gaff swung out over the water. He glimpsed the top of Red Ian's head and shoulders as the sailor hauled on a jib-sheet and the canvas belly of the sail cut off Estrella's view down to the foredeck. The jib filled to starboard, goose-winged, balancing the mainsail, and the molly lurched forward through increasingly muddy water like a broad-beamed woman with her skirts billowing around her. The passage was tighter than Estrella had guessed. The reddish water narrowed and narrowed between breakers. Roaring surf on either side drowned out even Roaring Jack's shouts. Weed lay along the surface of the brown stream, and the molly sailed through it as if in a field of rain-flattened grass. Long fingers of sand reached out towards them, and as quickly as they appeared vanished astern. Suddenly the waves that had plunged the molly up and down were gone, and the sound of rushing, crashing water was behind them. They were in a lagoon between reef and shore. "'Which way?' came Roaring Jack's shout from below, just as Estrella asked himself the same question. Ahead there was a beach of reddish sand, to which ran green, rolling fields dotted with clumps of maples, elms, and beaches that were bigger than Estrella had ever seen before. "'Which way?' he heard again. Estrella risked his balance and pointed to port. Shortly after he heard his voice crack in surprise, as the unmistakable sign of human settlement came from behind a clump of trees. "'Smoke! Ashore!' The boom and gaff swung, the topping lift cut at his armpit, and Estrella almost fell. As he was regaining his balance, Roaring Jack guided the molly up the slow-moving current of a winding river, scarcely more than a stream. To the starboard side they could see heavy rowboats drawn up on shore. There was no need for Estrella to report. He could hear conversation below him. "'Who builds scows like that?' asked Roaring Jack. "'Lubbers, mostly,' replied Red Ian. The molly wound her way upstream towards the smoke, slowing, as the current pushed against her. Estrella still tried to spy out rocks and shallows, but instead of the clear water of the ocean there was only reddish river water curling around soft mud banks. As the last of the wind faded behind a line of trees that ran almost to the water's edge, he glimpsed a collection of houses. They were fewer than at the village, but each was a different colour and some of them had contrasting windows, doors, and trim. Estrella had never seen precious paint on anything but a boat, and then only black or sometimes dark green. The stone and wood houses of the village were drab, compared to the many shades that appeared through the trees. He wondered what the people who lived in these bright houses might drink. Here was no clear stream like the one that provided the village with its water, but only a muddy river, slowly wandering down to stain the sea. To port, a green wall of forest slanted towards the muddy river. To starboard, Estrella saw a dike protecting a field. The molly lost headway as trees blocked her wind, and the current overcame what little way she maintained. Below him, Estrella heard the anchor thump the deck and then splash into the water. The molly slid astern on the lazy stream, and brought up with a gentle jerk. The spar on which he stood sagged as the sails went slack. For a moment Estrella was busy keeping his balance. Then, just as he saw a party of men walking behind the shelter of the dike, Skarm's voice floated up from the deck. "'Come on down now, Estrella!' Estrella climbed to the deck, 
down a mast that now stood exactly up and down. When he reached the deck, he was both drier and warmer than when he had first gone aloft. "'There's men coming,' he reported eagerly. "'Maybe a dozen or more. They're behind the dike.' As he spoke, two men crested the green mound and made their way to a rowboat pulled up on the muddy bank. They were both clean-shaven, and their hair was cut close to their heads, unlike the earlobe length worn by village men. Their little boat was almost square at both ends, an unwieldy craft that would not have lasted long in the village fjord, let alone in the open sea. The man who pulled at the stubby oars was no sailor, nor was the one who sat self-importantly in the stern. The rower had to stop and turn around every few strokes to keep his course, and each time he did it one of the Molly's crew either sighed or snorted contemptuously. "'Look,' said Yan, "'the man in the stern's got a sword!' "'Don't stand there gawpin,' ordered Roaring Jack, his voice once more a bellow. "'Get this boat shipshape and jump to it. Furl them sails neatly, coil the lines, let some air into the cabin, except Straya. Go get your markings, and bring us up to date afore you forget what you've seen. The boat from the shore came to within easy talking range of the molly, and the rower took short strokes to hold his position against the gentle current. The crew worked on, casting occasional glances at the two men. Roaring Jack stood tall in the cockpit, his folded arms proclaiming him the skipper. He peered down on the little boat as if he had just noticed its existence. Astrea quickly sketched the boat and its occupants, trying to catch the newcomers' faces and clothes. As he did so, he wondered what Roaring Jack might say later about wasting good marking bark. The men had expressions that seemed somehow smudged to Astrea, unlike the big-boned faces of Roaring Jack and the men from the village. Here, noses, brows, chins, and cheeks were rounded and soft particularly on the tubby little man in the stern of the rowboat. He was wrapped in a brown cloak, despite the heat of the day. The rower wore shirt and breeks similar to Astrea's, save that they were much looser, the shirt-tails hanging, as if the man had hastily borrowed his elder brother's clothes. "'Do you bring trade or trouble to Teen Mouth? asked the man with a sword in a curiously high voice. "'We're storm-struck on our way south,' returned Roaring Jack. Neither entirely comprehended the other, since they were unfamiliar with the words and the accents in which they were spoken. Estrella wondered at the man's curious, almost sing-song speech, while Roaring Jack scowled with the effort to understand what he'd heard. The two men in the boat conferred briefly, their heads bowed together. Then the rower let the sluggish current carry his boat away from the molly. "'If ye be raiders, know that there be men with weapons on the shore,' shouted the man in the stern, half-standing and showing them his sword. "'If I but wave my sword, there'll be your destruction.' "'Friendly little runt, ain't he?' said Red Ian. Roaring Jack hissed him into silence. Estrella looked at one shore and then the other. He was not sure whether they were within effective bowshot, but on the other hand— the Molly's crew had neither weapons nor defence against them if men came down to the water's edge and started shooting. The rowing boat trembled under the unsteady sword-holder's weight. Estrella wondered whether it would capsize and the Molly's crew be blamed for the accident. The man in the stern sat down just in time. "'We need water, an anchorage, till we have a fair wind,' said Roaring Jack, moderating his voice as much as he could. The two men bent their heads and talked agitatedly, rocking their small craft. "'Send two of your men for water. No weapons. The rest of you stay where you are,' squeaked the fat man in reply. The rowboat pulled awkwardly toward the shore, where five men appeared from behind the grassy dike. Aboard the molly, everyone had an opinion about what should be done next. Roaring Jack let Yan gabble at Red Ian and Skarm for a few minutes, and then drowned out conversation with a series of measured statements. "'They're afraid of us,' he said, and Red Ian nodded. "'But there are more of them than there are of us,' he added, 
recognizing Skarm's affirmative grunt with a tilt of his head. "'So we'll not make them angry at us over any small thing.' Having established agreement, Roaring Jack gave orders. First the crew unshipped and lowered the little dory that had been lashed ahead of the mast. Then Astraea and Yan climbed into it and took the two small water casks that Red Ian handed down to them. Yan rode towards the group of men at the water's edge. "'Why, us?' he grumbled as he tugged at the oars. "'Because nobody's going to be afraid of the two youngest,' said Astraea. "'That way, if they think about it, they'll decide that the skipper is so confident that he doesn't need to send the strongest men on the boat.' Yan frowned. "'No one can know the future,' Astraea added, unconsciously quoting his mother. "'I'd do the same as Roaring Jack. It's a good gamble.' "'Oh, I'm so glad the skipper's orders have the stranger's son's approval,' said Yan sarcastically. He tugged at his oars, making a splash. "'Oh, come on, Yan,' said Estrella, refusing to be needled. "'Let's look as if we know what we're doing. You can row better than that.' Yan's scowl deepened, but he continued the short trip with more skill than the landsman. When they grounded on the muddy beach— they hauled their boat up half its length and stepped onto mud that squished between their bare toes. They slung the two water casks under an oar each and shared the load on their shoulders as they climbed up and over the dike. On the landward side, a path led through knee-high grass towards a clump of big trees. Above their spreading crests, a skein of smoke trailed into the sky. To their right, was the group of men Astraea had seen from the mast. They stood together, muttering among themselves, watching the two young men. The fat man with the sword had climbed a little way up the dike, from which point of authority he waved to the two boys and pointed down the path. Reasoning that where there was smoke there were houses, and where there were houses there must be water, Astraea led the way. "'Don't go so fast,' grumbled Yan. "'You're always putting on a show.' and I don't like it. Excited by the strangeness around him, Astraea ignored Yan's discomfort. Avoiding looking at the staring faces, they followed the path past the assembled men, some of whom followed them down the path. Hurrying, booted feet thumped on the path first behind and then beside them. Water! And then added some other words neither Astraea nor Yan could understand. "'We're out of sight of the molly,' muttered Yan gloomily. Astraea glanced back. "'There's her masthead,' he said crisply, impatience masking his own nervousness. "'We still know where she is.' "'But they don't know where you're leading us, and I still don't like it,' said Yan. "'If you want to lead, go ahead,' said Astraea. He heard irritation in the tone of his own voice. Yan kept walking, muttering indistinctly. The path widened as they entered the shade of the big trees. Black branches laced together overhead, blocking the sky with their broad leaves. Astraea stopped, and the empty kegs bumped together hollowly. "'What did you do that for?' demanded Yan. "'They're oaks!' exclaimed Astraea when he saw the distinctive leaves up close. "'But they're huge!' "'So what?' grumbled Yan. "'They don't grow thicker than two handspans at home. "'Here, two men couldn't get their arms around one of them.' "'Who cares? "'Let's just get the water so we can get back to the molly.' "'At first the shade seemed dark after the bright sunlight, "'but within a few steps they saw a stone-ringed well. "'When the casks were set up near the well-mouth, Estrella looked around him, wishing for his sketching equipment. He imagined a picture of the light dappling through the leaves, through the crooked black branches, onto the brown stone circle around the well, which was a destination for five paths. Between the trunks of the trees, Estrella glimpsed the green and red of the colourful houses he'd seen from the molly. He looked back and saw the man in the brown cloak approaching, along with three or four older men. They stopped to watch from a cautious distance of about half a dozen strides. He noticed that they stood with their shoulders hunched, 
glancing first at Estrella and then Jan, and then at each other, as if for reassurance. The men became part of a picture in Estrella's mind, one of the many he might draw to illustrate the tale of his journey. A second picture would be more a detailed view of the men in their loose, almost shapeless clothes. Unlike village men, they were all beardless, although several had moustaches. Many of the faces were soft and plump with good living, although most of the older men were weathered by sun and wind. Something was different about these faces that puzzled Estrella at first. Then he realized what they lacked. Their eyes did not have the lines common to every fisherman at the village, the lines that come from staring out over the sea in all kinds of weather. Then as he turned to look around him, Estrella saw three young men coming towards the well down one of the five paths between the big trees. By their size they appeared to be somewhat older than Estrella and Jan, but their faces were beardless, which gave them a childish look. They were obviously sizing up the newcomers in case there was a fight. Then their heads turned as a group of four girls appeared down another of the paths to the well. The girls stopped at the edge of the clearing and whispered together in a group, pretending not to notice the glances that they were attracting from both their own young men and from Australia. Like the men, the girls wore heavy boots that made their feet look clumsy. Estrella's eyes lingered on their blouses, bright with smocking that lifted their breasts in a way that would have been thought immodest in the village. "'Help me, can't you?' demanded Jan, struggling with the bucket by the well while Estrella looked around. "'Let's get the water and leave!' Jan was having difficulty working the unfamiliar windlass over the well's mouth, since at home in the village fetching water was done by dipping buckets into the swift-flowing stream. "'It's simple.' said Estrella. Drop the bucket into the well, let it fill, and then wind it up again. Taking the handle from Jan, he let the bucket fall, and then turned the creaking spindle to haul up a bucket full of water. When he looked at Jan, he saw dumb hatred in the young man's eyes. So he put the bucket down and stepped back. So, now that smart-arse Blackhead has shown me how, I get to do all the work, Jan muttered. Estrella understood that anything he said or did now would be taken amiss. So, as Jan poured the bucket into the first of the casks, Estrella took a couple of paces towards the men, watching the two of them. Smoothing a patch of earth with his foot, he knelt, picked up a small stick, and started to sketch a plan of the lagoon, creek, and the houses he had seen. The men stepped forward to watch, turning their heads from one side to the other while the brown-cloaked man from the boat stood importantly by himself, a heavy-set man came forward to stand behind Estrella to see what he was scratching. "'Teen Mouth,' he said, pointing with the toe of his heavy boot. "'River Teen,' he continued, and bent over to track a winding course inland with his finger. Estrella looked into his wide and puffy face, but found it as inexpressive as his flat voice. "'Is there a city to the south?' asked Estrella slowly. The man poked at the ground with his foot, scratching a rough map. "'Charton be in the south. Up river. Then past the Learned's Castle, and then on down to the Great Harbour. Couple of days on the horse. Maybe a week on foot. Maybe less.' The hesitation about distances made Estrella wonder if his informant had ever been to the places he talked about. Hoping to get more information, he reached into his pocket for his father's notebook, but before he could use it, Jan interrupted him. "'Come on, Estrella! Help me with these kegs! I'm doing all the work here!' "'I'll be there in a moment,' said Estrella, without turning around. He put Jan out of his mind and focused on getting more information from the teen-mouth man, who went on speaking as Estrella scratched fresh marks onto the ground. He found his ear being accustomed to the man's slow talk, even though some words were run together as if the man were bored or hated talking. This was clearly not the case, however, because Estrella could hardly ask his questions in the spate of information he was given, most of it far too detailed and reliant on local knowledge to be useful. He did manage to catch what he took to be place names Teenmouth, Mizzle, Markham, Charton. 
but he had difficulty in working out where they were, or whether they were inland or on the coast. The one-sided exchange continued until Yan finished filling the second keg. By that time, Estrella had learned that there were at least two more gaps in the sand bar edging the lagoon, more villages both east and west, and a harbor somewhere to the southwest. Distances remained vague, and so did the configuration of the shoreline, which he guessed ran east and then hooked around to the southwest. The other men moved closer and were quietly exchanging observations about Estrella as he talked to their spokesman. Yan muttered, just loud enough for the two of them to hear, No help! Black-haired big head! Fart face! Suck up! The man in the brown cloak glanced at Yan, his attention broken. He frowned at Estrella, who decided to bring the confusing interview to an end. He stood and lowered his head respectfully. "'We thank you for the water, for your help and advice,' said Estrella formally. The man nodded briefly and returned to his fellows, who were talking among themselves. Estrella caught a few words. "'Black beard. Strange. Different. Not like the others.' He shrugged off annoyance at words unwelcome even in the strange accents, and turned to go, focusing on his pleasure that he would have news for Roaring Jack. As he picked up his end of the two oars, Estrella smiled broadly, completely ignoring the fear and misgiving on Yan's face. "'I've got some directions,' he said. "'I think there's a harbour to the southeast.' When Yan only grumbled to himself, Estrella felt his excitement turn to annoyance. "'Oh, all right,' he said. "'Be a punky old log in a bog, and don't say anything.' The rhyming insult from his childhood was out before he could stop himself. An apology was out of the question, with the teen-mouth men watching, and anyway Estrella did not feel repentant. The kegs dangling from the oars on their shoulders, they walked slowly from among the trees into the bright glare of the sun, Estrella in the lead. When they were almost to the dike, Yan suddenly gripped both oars tight and stopped walking. The other end of the oars slid from Estrella's shoulders, bumping painfully down his back. The two kegs slid down the fallen oars, hitting Estrella in the back of his legs. He staggered and turned, a question on his lips, but before he had a chance to ask it, Yan pulled one of the oars free from its lashing to the keg and swung it in a whistling arc. The blade of the oar struck Estrella on the neck. He fell heavily, and a second blow hit him in the back. Now all he could do was roll into a ball to protect himself. Two more rib-cracking blows came down on his sides. Estrella tried to speak, but could only manage a grunt. Yan's voice reached him through the roaring in his ears. "'I hate you! I hate you! I hate you!' repeated Yan over and over. "'You're so smart! So clever!' You make me into nothing. You help me. You, you, you foreigner. The final blow hit Estrella across the side of his head. Yan kicked him in the ribs and ran towards the beach, dragging the oars behind him. Estrella struggled to his knees, saw black, sliced with crimson, and heard shouts diminishing into a huge, dark distance. He did not feel his face hit the earth. You have been listening to the Estrella Trilogy, Book One, The Voyage South, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit astreatrilogy.com for more about Estrella's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0.